0: This is not easy, living beautifully with uncertainty and change, right? Anyone else have a problem with this besides me? Okay, good to see I'm not alone. Sometimes in my life I have lived, well, beautifully enough with uncertainty and change and it's made a huge difference. Made a huge difference as I looked down right here at my wife. Made a huge difference during what we now call the seven-hour conversation. This is not hyperbole; it was a seven-hour conversation. We had been out on several dates together, and I thought we were really enjoying each other's company, and I think we were. This was over about twelve years ago, early two thousand four. And we talked one Saturday night. I had, you know, church the next morning. We were living in Florida. And I could sense a little bit of hesitance in her voice. We had been out the night before. And what she started to reveal is that maybe she just wasn't that into me. She wasn't sure about how she felt. And, you know, initially I felt that. Uh, My feelings are reciprocated, and I'm not worthy, or she's this, or she's that, and I'm this, I'm that, and all those swirl feelings, and, you know, it's tough not to be reactive when you're getting a little bit of heartbreak. And I didn't react from that place. Just listened and asked questions. And it turned out what she wasn't trying to do was let me down gently. She just really wasn't quite sure of how she was feeling. And as I listened and got the sense that this is what she truthfully meant, I could also start to see that although I was uncertain about the future, even though I kind of knew the intensity of my feelings, hmm, maybe this would be all right. And so about 90 minutes into the seven-hour conversation, I shared these words. Well, if my tolerance for ambiguity can match your tolerance for ambivalence, I think we got something we can work with here. (laughs) It's a good line, isn't it? It worked. (laughs) Because the conversation went on for five and a half more hours, and we're now married. So you can fill in the rest of that story there. By the way, the next day we saw each other, just a little postscript here, and it was Super Bowl Sunday. And we went out, and I watched, I don't know, what, 90 seconds of the game, maybe? And we were focused on each other. It was a great, great date. And uh, about 30 seconds after the game ended, it was Patriots-Panthers. A friend of mine who's a huge Patriots fan called me. I know Boo Hiss. Everyone hates the Patriots. Forget about that. Um, Oh, my God, you see that game? It's incredible. Ah, Last second field goal. Dude, I barely watched any of it. And he screamed the F word at me into the phone and hung up. And then 30 seconds later, he called me back. You on a date, man? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's totally cool. (laughs) So Downton Abbey, being on a date for some of us, it's all right to not watch the game. So that story had a clear and happy ending of not being reactive. But there isn't always a clear and happy ending when we're in the midst of uncertainty and change. Like in a recent trip that I went on to Haiti, a service learning trip, that some other members of the congregation, we went on together with some other Unitarian Universalists in the area. And this happened on our first full day in the country, Sunday. And we were going from Port-au-Prince, the main city, to, the, uh, to what's called MPP, the agrarian echo compound in which we would be spending the following week. It's about three hours away, and about an hour and a half in, on this journey, in the front two seats were was our Haitian translator, Mahita, and our Haitian driver, Carell. In the back of us, uh, this back seat, three of us, all from America, all on the trip. Carell got a call, it was in Creole, I don't understand, so Mahita turned around to us and said, in the small town that we're coming up to, Carell is going to stop by and pick up his daughter, and she's going to join us for the week. ...at the MPP compound. She's 11 years old. Stops by the side of the road in a small Haitian town. He gets out, goes to look for his daughter. And Mahita immediately leans over... ...to the driver's side and auto-locks the door... ...so that we're all bolted in. And I'm wondering, hmm... ...did she do this because, you know, we're actually in danger or did she do this because we're a bunch of foreigners in Haiti and we've heard all the scary stories and she's doing this to assuage our anxious minds Correll comes back gets back in the driver's side no daughter Haiti is not a country with amber alerts by the way two more times in this small town we pull over Correll hops out Mahita immediately leans over locks the door Corral comes back, no daughter. At that third stop and final stop in this small town, we're pulled over to the side of the road, and I catch the eye of two young Haitian men who are walking by. A lot of people are walking by. This is not a country in which people have a lot of their own private cars. Most people just pass by. A lot of little kids wave at us. These two young men, I would venture to say around 20 years old or so, Stop and stare. And they've got that look that I've seen on the faces of a lot of young men worldwide. Tough. Don't mess with us. And I wonder are they taking our size here? Are we a target? Are we a threat? I mean, I remember the night before we stayed at a hotel in Port-au-Prince in which the entranceway was guarded by a 15-foot high metal wall that day and night is also guarded by someone with a submachine gun. And so as I'm sitting and thinking, are they sizing us up? And I'm looking at me, looking at them, looking at us. I'm wondering, are we really a target? Or maybe they're just looking at us. What's my racism here? What's my own conditioned fear What's my projection? What's the reality? What's real? I know a little bit about the history of Haiti, enough to know that most of the harm done in Haiti has not been done by Haitians to foreigners. It's been done by foreigners to Haitians. And so I'm sitting in the midst of this uncertainty, in this stare down with these two young men across the way, and I see my mind trying to grasp what is actually happening. Grasping for certainty, grasping for reality, grasping for what's really going on here. Which interpretation is correct? And then I do a little something called pro communicate like a pro. Very brief version of this. Pause. Okay. Mind racing. Relax. Maybe let the shoulders droop a little bit and open. Take a breath. And the only thing I knew in that moment was that the truest thing was the most uncertain thing. I had no clue what the right interpretation was. Being there in that moment meant there was no absolute real answer that I could cling to. And I would just have to sit with it. And by the way, sitting with it meant I was less stressed. So this moment was fairly unique in my life, and the truth is, however, that it's not unlike many other moments in my head in life, and perhaps in your life as well, too. In which we are in a situation that maybe has some stress, some anxiety, some fear, and we're uncertain, and we see our minds going and going and going, trying to find the right interpretation, the one thing that will put us at ease if only we can find it. By the way, to end that story, we pulled out of that small town totally fine. Carell didn't find his daughter there, however. Twenty minutes later into the ride, he got another call that said his daughter had been located and she would be joining us later on at MPP for the week. She did. Father and daughter were reunited. So I will probably never see those two young men on the other side of the road again. But this is the takeaway that I keep with me, keeping open, keeping curious, being okay enough with the mysteries that do not resolve, that open awareness that says sometimes clinging to one story no matter the promise of safety that we think it will give us, letting go of that desire to cling, that can be the most truthful, faithful, loving thing that we can possibly do. So this is the point in the message where I have to tell you, I have nothing against our human capacity to figure stuff out. I love figuring things out. It's one of the best things about being a human being. It's one of the best things about being alive. We will figure things out. And yet, there's a lot that we won't. The problem comes for many of us, and I know for me, when we over-identify with this capacity to be problem solvers. Ah, I put myself at ease when I can figure out the problem, when I can know absolutely what's going on. The problem comes for many of us, including me, when we over-identify as people who fill in the blanks, especially in relationships. I have found over and over again in my life that it is often better when I am in a disagreement with someone to keep that blank space open rather than to fill it with something false or a projection or a story that I've created that I think grants me security, but what it ends up really doing is just separating me from the person that I'm working with or the people that I'm around. I mean, I could have concocted a whole story, right, of what happened with Haiti, We got stared down by two young men who were casing us. By the way, how often is that story told in one variation or another? They were threatening me. And by the way, that story can end in hellacious, horrible ways, murderous ways. This curious, open awareness, I think, serves us best when the fear of uncertainty makes it most likely that we will cling to an answer to alleviate our fear. Why do we have this temptation? I don't know. It's an old temptation. Spiritual teachers have been talking about it for thousands of years. I think in our lives, it's because many of us privilege comfort above all else. Because our ability to be problem solvers is something that many of us are rewarded for. Because who are we if we're not knowing? And so a different question. Instead, who might we be if we are aware of all that swirl of stories and that inner complexity and right there, right here in the middle of it, just did not rush to resolve? By the way, this is the way, I believe, not finding yourself a four-hour work week. This is the way. Letting go of the rush to resolve is to find or be on the way to finding that thing that so many of us want More time. This rush to resolve robs us of our time over and over and over again. And that's just the utilitarian way of looking at it. How much more rich and mysterious would our lives be? How much more often would we actually connect with the person that we're talking to rather than getting lost in the story of our own heads looking for the right response that will end The conversation, and we can walk away feeling, ah, I've articulated everything I wanted to do, and perhaps I even won the debate. How much more real and mysterious and loving would our lives be? If we might be able to do something that I saw and then uh, posted on Facebook from a little uh, um, website called Tiny Buddha, and it comes with this tagline, uh, how to avoid unnecessary arguments. And it's in this situation that I'm just describing. You know, someone says something uh, negative to you, maybe at work or maybe your spouse or maybe one of your kids. And all of a sudden, you know, you feel feel this happening. You feel this happening. The story I'm making up is. The story I'm making up is I'm going to get fired tomorrow. The story I'm making up is when my spouse doesn't hug me or express love to me in the way that I would have wished, you know, They're not paying attention to me or they don't love me. The story I'm making up is, look at how we might fill in the blank there. And by the way, the cool thing about this post is it says, say that out loud. (laughs) Say that out loud to the person you're having the disagreement with and see what happens. The story I'm making up is. So often we can go into our conversations kind of hardened, ready for battle and see how the story I'm making up is, might be a form of creative nonviolence, disarming ourselves, a form of turning towards the reality of our lives and turning towards each other. And it is, by the way, a practice of a phrase that gets thrown around a lot that I don't think many of us, including myself, often really understand. The phrase is unconditional love which most often we talk about unconditional love as, you know, I will love you regardless of what you do. So it's kind of along the approval-disapproval line. But I don't think that's what unconditional love is really about. Unconditional love, I believe, is at its core about letting our love, allowing our love to be larger than our knowledge. Love as a basic orientation to this life that is baffling and amazing and scary and perplexing and is so much bigger than us that the way the world is it will not resolve at least not while we're around I'm not sure I want the world to resolve because there's a lot of theologies that teach about how the world resolves and it tends to end up with a lot of people going to a happy place and a lot of people going to a very sad place (laughs) this rush to resolve it kills our time It is not unconditional love. It is not a heart growth practice. And it certainly doesn't do what this great little thing from a, a children's author. His name is Dallas something or other, I forget. I love this. I posted this not too long ago. One, we are in space. Two, no one knows what's going on. Three, I love you. Now, what I want to ask you to do right now is bring your hand up in front of your face to where the I love you is blocked. Can you do that for me? So it's just, we are in space and no one knows what's going on. That really changes the meaning of this, doesn't it? (laughs) Oh my God, we are in space, no one knows what's going on. Ah, free. I love you. See how that expression, love, curiosity, affirmation, relationship changes the uncertainty? The problem in our lives so often is not the uncertainty. The problem is our relationship with the uncertainty. That's where the reactive behaviors begin. That's where the addictive stuff comes out. That's where the urge to know, which is sometimes that subtle, not so subtle at times, desire to control comes out. And yes, I'm reminded that this is Super Bowl Sunday and that this is the most American of all sports because it's all about resolution. One day, clear winner, clear loser. And yes, I know in championships and other games and other sports, baseball, hockey, basketball, it's even like, you know, four out of seven. So you can win a little bit and then you can lose a little bit and then they kind of all add it up. But Super Bowl, football, Win, lose, one or the other. I think actually our love of football, and I love football. Actually, i got a love-hate relationship with football, but that's for another message and another time. I'll probably preach on the concussion movie this coming summer. But I think that says something about our anxiety and our anger as a culture, this love and the need for resolution. And it reminds me that one of my favorite movies from this past year is this. Inside out, joy, sadness, disgust, fear, anger, the five emotions inside the head of the animated 13-year-old girl Riley going through a difficult time in her life. And not just was it the best animated movie of the past year, but I think it was one of the best movies of the past year. And specifically, in addition to all the other ways in which it's excellent, specifically this, there's no villain Almost every movie, especially animated movies, have a villain, someone who needs to be overcome, someone who needs to be defeated, someone who needs to be put in their right place so that someone else can win or be peaceful or be whole. The challenge in Inside Out is not resolution, winning versus losing. The only challenge in Inside Out is integration. How will we allow the different parts of who we are, sometimes the parts that even like to butt heads with each other, how will we allow them to be? That's the only win in this movie. And by the way, it's the kind of win that doesn't win by making someone else a loser. And so it's not a surprise that the tension in this movie, in Inside Out, is Riley going to run away. Is she going to give in to that elsewhere envy? That someplace else syndrome? Somewhere else it's going to be fine. Instead the movie is all about being here. Being at home. Being with all the complexity in the midst of our lives. This just isn't a powerful way to approach our lives. It's actually revolutionary. Revolutionary. And so I want to close with a story from the monastery blog that I know many of you are fond of. Might recognize Glennon in there. Glennon is a white woman. Glennon, who was there with three other women, Lakia Wilson, Sheila Turner, and Samantha Hoskin. She was posted on this what happened in Michigan. She uh, Glennon well-known she speaks in a lot of kind of progressive Christian churches thousands of people show up a lot of UU's are very fond of her as well too and she had received from one of these women from Lakeia I believe. All of them teachers in the Detroit public school system in appeal, talking about the horrendous conditions in which the Detroit public school systems and the schools find themselves. Black mold and asbestos still on the pipes and kids writing with nubs of pencils and no new books in decades and freezing cold because there's no heat in the schools. And so these three women appealed to Glennon. And her Together Rising grassroots charity campaign. Appealing for resources. And so at the end of this speech she gave with these three other women there. They were going to share that Together Rising had granted their entire wish list. Until Glennon recognized. But as I sat up on that stage. And looked at these three warriors I realized. Wait, a feel-good moment is not what is needed here. An uncomfortable moment is what is needed here. And so she said to her beloved thousand-person, mostly female, mostly white audience, about her own faith. About her experience of who Jesus is to her. Not one who condemns and casts out, but the opposite. One who calls for an all inclusive belonging. One who says the first will be last and the last will be first. And one who calls us in to facing our fears. Now, I don't have the exact same faith as Glennon, but I loved everything she said. It is so countercultural, especially for people of a certain amount of privilege. It's all about having the answers all about solving, all about fixing, all about resolving. And so she forewent that reality TV moment. I mean, I am a sentimental sap. I love that reality TV moment when the appeal is made and the people have been suffering for a long time. They get the new house or they get the new car, they get everything they wanted. And you know that myth of the deserving poor, it's a really toxic story actually, and yet still I'm such a sentimental sap. So I love that Glennon forewent that opportunity because I know myself well enough, I'm a maturing sentimental sap. That's not love. It's not faithful to life. It's not faithful or truthful to other people's suffering. And so as Glennon said in concluding the blog post, to keep on remembering Detroit... And Flint where the people have been poisoned. And I would add to that Haiti. Or maybe you want to add to that any other place and any other people who you know. It is so easy for those of us with relative degrees of privilege. Whatever degree of privilege you think you have. Or are willing to acknowledge that you have. Simply because we have the satisfying emotional moment. We can provide goods, services. And we get to feel really good about walking away then. Their story is not over. If we think our job is to solve those places, those people, this is what I take away from Haiti more than anything else. We, I, are contributing to their suffering. Because if we think our job is to solve, then all we're doing is making them characters in our story. Not seeing the reality of other people. But if our job is to witness and keep on seeing and to keep paying attention, in that witnessing, we will be loving. And whatever solving, actually strike that, whatever healing we can contribute to, it will only And ever arise from our loving. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Unresolved God. The infinite. The eternal. The unconditional. We are not separate from these things. These things are ours. These ways of being belong here in our hearts. So that we might open and open and open again in the same way that the turning of the earth does not resolve. That we might find ourselves in this turning and turning and turning to be able to come round right and to travel in the original orbit of belonging and belovedness. In this, may we circle the sun and may the light shine upon us. Amen.